had a really nice gig last night in Torquay, England, where I'm sitting right now. After the gig, the promoter pulled me aside and he told me a really good story. I guess the cast of Monty Python was once staying at a nearby hotel when they were filming The Holy Grail. And the cast claimed that the owner of the hotel was a bit of a pain in the ass. He repeatedly criticized Terry Gilliam's table manners and threw Eric Idle's briefcase out a window. He said there was a bomb in it, which there wasn't. The guy was such a nutcase that they ended up checking into a different hotel to get away from him. And John Cleese said he was the most marvelously rude man I've ever met. He made such an impression on Cleese that he patterned his character in faulty towers after him. And sadly, the hotel was torn down last year. I took a walk this morning around Torquay, the beautiful seaside town on the southwestern coast of England. I guess it's the home of Agatha Christie. She was raised here and might have lived all of her life, it appears. But I stumbled across this poison garden that was planted by Agatha Christie. And it's the first time I've ever seen a cyanide plant face to face. Hopefully I won't see too many of them. But the tour started in London. Had a sold out show. Just really, really fun gig. So many nice people. So many people that came up and said that they enjoy this show and they listen to it. It's always great to meet you guys. But earlier in the day, I took a walk around. I ended up at this old cemetery. And whenever you hear stories of Victorian grave robbers, this is the cemetery that they're probably talking about. Yes, it was notorious. It's actually mentioned by Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities, and this is where the grave robbing scene was. But in 1865, over 30,000 bodies were dug up so they could make room for a new train station that was coming in. And there was a young, unknown man named Thomas Hardy who was hired to oversee this task of moving all of these bodies. And Hardy planted this ash tree and arranged all of these tombstones, just crammed them in in a circle around it, made sort of a makeshift monument to the displaced dead. But Hardy would later become one of the titans of English literature, just a great, great writer who's celebrated to this day. But when he had this job of digging up 30,000 graves so they could build a train station, he wrote this poem. O passenger, pray list and catch our sighs and piteous groans, half stifled in this jumbled patch of wretched memorial stones. We late lamented resting here are mixed to human jam, and each to each exclaims in fear, I know not which I am. That's The Leveled Churchyard an early poem by Thomas Hardy. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting in a hotel room in Torquay, England. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Billy Bragg. Billy is a singer and a songwriter, and you can find out everything you need to know about Billy at billybragg.com. 
I caught up with Billy when he was in Nashville. He was kicking off a tour with Joe Henry of the album that they did of Railroad Songs, which I highly recommend. But I drove Billy around town a little bit and showed him some of the sights of East Nashville. We went over and visited uh, Roy Acuff's grave, Jimmy Martin's grave, John Hartford's grave. Had a good time, and uh, the whole time, Billy was talking about Skiffle. He said he'd just finished writing a book about Skiffle, which will be out somewhere down the line. And as an American, I really don't know that much about Skiffle. All that I know about Skiffle is pretty much what Billy has told me throughout the years. He's kind of passionate about the subject, and he makes a convincing argument to its importance. I said, hey, Billy, what do you say we go ahead and uh, record this for my show and maybe some of the folks that listening will enjoy your insights? And he was more than happy to do it. So we recorded this in his hotel room in downtown Nashville. There's a lot to cover here, so we did just a bit of a rough overview. But if you want to learn more, you want to pick up a copy of his book when it comes out. I should also say, just in case you haven't heard them, there are two other episodes that we've done with Billy that you can find in the archives at otisgibbs.com. Here's Billy Bragg. Skiffle, in its British sense, is a form of predominantly folk music played on acoustic guitars that flourished between January 1956 and January 1958. It was a a kind of do-it-yourself scene. Most of the people who were playing it were school-age boys. There were a few artists who had hits in the charts. Most predominant among them was a guy named Lonnie Donegan. But the key aspect of it was it, it taught an entire generation of British teenagers how to play three chords on an acoustic guitar. So when Chuck Berry turns up playing guitar like a ring and a bell, most of them can already play his entire repertoire. And what those boys do is they go to Hamburg and they go and play on the American air bases and when the Beatles break America in 1964, there's already a dozen British bands ready to go and come in right behind them. You, you know, the Beatles could have got together and made great records and broke America, but, but without Skiffle, there wouldn't have been the British invasion. And that's why I think this is a, a story that, that Americans would be interested in because, you know, the, the, the Beatles, in some ways the Beatles now are part of American culture, perhaps even more than they're part of our culture. Uh, they are more, to me, uh, emblemic of the, that, that 1960s period in, in America, post-Kennedy uh, and pre-assassinations than, than they are really and what they were doing in, in Britain. So I've, I've been aware that very few Americans know anything about how Skiffle came to be, what it was and what it led to. So I've, I've been, been writing this book trying to, trying to put Skiffle into its context because if you look at British... Uh, pop history, it does all go back to Lonnie Donegan having a hit with Lead Belly's Rock Island Line in January 1956. To the extent that you would think that that was a singularity that came out of nowhere and just happened. But it wasn't. It was a, it was a, a, a confluence of cultural pressures in Britain that built up after the Second World War. That's the sort of, that's the sort of context I'm trying to tease out in this book up in my Skiffle kind of comes out of what we call the trad boom. 
After the Second World War, young British musicians wanted to play jazz in the style that it was originally played in New Orleans before Louis Armstrong went to Chicago. This is very interesting because in some ways it's very similar to what happened during punk. These guys who wanted to play trad were bored by the commerciality of swing, which was the predominant pop music of the time. And they wanted to get back to something that was more authentic. And because none of the New Orleans jazz players had been recorded, any of the African-American ones any, anyway, people like Buddy Bolden, they, they had something there that they could, they could aim for and they couldn't be told they were, they were wrong. And it's very similar to the impulse that drove the Ramones to go back to garage rock or uh, the Flaming Groovies to make Shake Some Action or Dr. Feelgood to play R&B in British pubs in the mid-70s. They were looking for simplicity, for authenticity, but really they were appalled by what was in the, not there were charts in those days in Britain, but what was what passed for mainstream music. And in that, they were part of a, a, a really important reaction to the commerciality of swing. On one hand, there were white American musicologists who went back to New Orleans to, to write about this stuff. And they wrote a book called Jasmine, which came out in the, I think came out in the 1940s, which kind of gave British students of jazz the, the grounding for the knowledge. Because there was no way to find out this stuff. You couldn't find, you know, you could, couldn't find these obscure jazz records in the UK. It was all word of mouth. But at the same time, there was a, another reaction, which was among predominantly uh, African-American, young African-American musicians in New York, which led to bebop and modern jazz and Dizzy and Miles and Charlie Parker. But they were both the same reaction. They were both reacting to the commerciality of swing. And, and trad is kind of part of that. So this was going on in, in clubs, uh, in Soho, in London. There were trad jazz clubs, but it was kind of quite an underground scene. It wasn't uh, getting into the mainstream. And there was one cat named Ken Collier who was a, a horn player, and he was absolutely obsessed with this New Orleans music. What happens is they, the guys who went to write this book, Jasmine, they kept hearing the name of this one guy, Bunk Johnson, uh, who was also a horn player, who had played with Buddy Bolden, but nobody knew what happened to him. In sometime in the 40s, he was rediscovered. They found him again, driving a, a sugar uh, beet truck, and uh, he had no teeth and he couldn't play. So they clubbed together, got some money, bought him some new teeth and a trumpet, and it turns out that he, he could play in this kind of rough-house style, and that's what they liked about it. When I would argue that New Orleans is more important to the development of British pop music than any other American city, simply because of uh, skiffle and, 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 and trad jazz. There's a guy named Ken Collier who's absolutely obsessed with New Orleans jazz. And the only way you can learn to play this stuff is to go and watch people playing it and watch their hands. I don't know if you know this, but Lead Belly used to sometimes play with a handkerchief over his fingers so that people wouldn't be able to nick his licks. So, you know, you would, you would go and sit in the club and watch that person playing whatever instrument it was you played. You would watch them and try and work out how they did what they were doing. It's the only way to find out. So Ken Collier really realised that his ability to play was limited by the fact that he never got to see these guys play. Because at the time, the Musicians' Union had a ban on American bands coming to play in the UK. And it was a reciprocal ban that had been initiated by the American Federation of Musicians. Um, which refused to let 
British big bands come to America. And this band was in place from 1936, I think, up until 1955. So Collier decides, he's, he's got a little band called the Crane River Jazz Band, but he realises our limits, so he decides the only way he's going to ever find out how to really play this shit is to go to New Orleans. But it's 1951 and he can't take money out of the country because the economy's so bad. You know, it's post-war rationing. Some things after the Second World War, the British economy was so bad that some things that were never rationed during the war, like bread, were rationed after the war. The economy was so bad. Yeah, yeah, it was just destroyed. So Ken Collier realises that he'd never even get a work permit in America, to get a visa, rather, to go to America. So the only thing he thinks he can do is he, he decides to join the Merchant Navy and try and get on a boat that goes to the Gulf of Mexico. Takes him four ships, because in the Merchant Navy, if you go and sign on, they give you a, a chit, and you have to go to the ship, and they have to take you, right? You can't go down and say, I don't like this ship. Well, they can't say, I don't like this bloke. It's like a taxi rank. That's it, you know, and if you, if you refuse, they, they come down and make, make it happen. So, yeah, he, he went to Australia. He went through the Gulf of uh, Arabia. He went everywhere except, and then one day he was sitting in there with a guy in, in, who got the chit that had to go to Mobile, Alabama, and he's like, Mobile, Alabama. Collier, I'll swap you, I'll swap you. And he, cha and he changed it. So he got, he got on a ship to Mobile uh, that was running to Venezuela with, on an oil run down to Venezuela to the Orinoco. So he did a couple of runs on the ship and eventually he decides to jump ship in Mobile, gets on a ground bus and goes to, to um, New Orleans. And he's heard about this guy named Doc Souchon, who's a kind of uh, jazz aficionado, has a radio program, runs the New Orleans Jazz Club. And he looks him up in the, in the phone directory and rings him up and says, listen, I'm in town, I'm a sailor, I'm, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Souchon takes him around and shows him all the places. And he takes him and... Bunk Johnson's died by this point, but his band, who played with these seminal records that were recorded in 1948 by the guys who wrote the books about jazz who bought him his teeth. <laughs> Bunk Johnson's teeth again, I'm afraid. Um, they made these seminal recordings for the American record label, um, which uh, the jazz revival in Britain is kind of built on these records. Mm -hmm. And the band, which is now led by a guy named George Lewis, is still playing in New Orleans. So Souchon takes Ken Collier to see these guys, and of course, Ken Collier knows their material inside out. And they're really pleased about this. This is white kid. You know, nobody cares about these old black guys playing this music that only old black people are interested in. You know, it's grandpa's music. It's from the turn of the century. This is like 1950s. This is the, they're playing the music they played as teenagers for people who were teenagers then in these hole-in-the-wall bars, you know. It's Lawrence Welk stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, you know, he just, he just loves it. Uh, and... Not only does he know the stuff, but he also knows how to play it because he's been playing it in his band. He's been copying the records. So he sits in with them, which, you know, when you think about it, it's incredible. Not only has he got to New Orleans and found these heroes, but now they're saying, yeah, come on, sit in. So he sits, he sits in with them to such an extent that he gets uh, arrested uh, because his visa's expired. But he's really picked up because he's just white. He gets told as a white kid, you can't sit in with those old guys. You can't go and play black musicians and it's like this is why I've come here these these people are my teachers like this is why I've come to New Orleans so he, he eventually gets arrested and deported back to England uh, and that's even more legendary because not only now as he as he played with these jazz guys old jazz guys now he's in jail in America in America 
like Lead Belly, okay? <laughs> and all the time he's writing to his brother about what he's doing. And his brother's passing the letters to the Melly Maker, and the Melly Maker are printing them in the Melly Maker. So he's become an absolutely legendary. This you is know, a publicist's like, dream. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and it's, like, it's like it would be like you and me going to Oklahoma and finding Woody and hanging out with Woody and then hoboing with him. And right, it's exactly like that, you know. It's, it's beyond. And so when he came back to England, he was like, he, he was like Moses comes from the mountaintop to show how to play New Orleans jazz. There was always already a little jazz band being put together by a guy named uh, Chris Barber, who's a trombone player, which included this guy uh, Lonnie Donegan, who was the banjo player in the rhythm section, and Collier's brother. Bill Collier, who was a jazz expert, he worked in a jazz record store. He he sort of said, look, you know, Ken's coming home, he's going to need a band. Would you be his band? So they said, yeah, of course, it would be incredible. He's going to come and teach us how to play. Norning Star. So he comes back and um, they form a band, the, the uh, Ken Collier Jazz Band. But Ken Collier, like so many uh, old jazz, is a bit of a purist. And... He's not very articulate either. He doesn't read music and he can't communicate to the band what they're doing wrong. And friction comes. And and eventually he says to Chris Barber, who's his kind of, you know, a trombone player, I'm going to have to get rid of the rhythm section. And Barber says, well, you can't do that. The band's a collective. You can't sack them. We're going to have a meeting and we'll decide. And they have a meeting and they decide actually they sack him. They sack Collier because he's only... He won't play anything other than New Orleans jazz. So when they go out of London and people are expecting a foxtrot or something, you know, just because they're on a Saturday night out, they're not necessarily crazy fans for New Orleans jazz. He won't do it. He's such a purist. So they sack him. They chuck him out. So now there's two bands. There's the Ken Collier, new Ken Collier band, and the Chris Barber jazz band. And one of the things that Collier initiates is that um, they have a little breakdown band in the, in the jazz band, in the, in the first Ken Collier jazz band. Uh, that comes back from New Orleans. He has a what he calls a breakdown band because because their lips uh, go numb because they're not used to playing. They have to take a break. So what happens then when they take a break? The banjo player, Lonnie Donegan, comes from the back and picks up an acoustic guitar and they play Lead Belly songs. And and Collier joins him sometimes. Chris Barber plays a bit of double bass. He plays he plays the double bass instead of trombone. And sometimes if anyone wants to, they join in on a washboard. And they have this kind of breakdown session, what they call breakdown session. It, these breakdown sessions are quite popular. Playing not just Lead Belly songs. I mean, Donegan also uh, was uh, liked kind of maudlin songs, you know, some of the Cart family stuff. I liked a bit of that, you know, and um, some early country as well. And when he first started singing, Donegan sounded a lot like Roscoe Holcomb. He sounded, he had that high lonesome sound because he'd been, he'd been in, um, conscripted into the army. He'd been in Vienna where, American Forces Radio was on all the time where he worked. And he'd heard a lot of country, a lot of blues, you know, and he kind of worked it out from that. He got, that's where he got he picked it up. Like I said, you couldn't buy these records. So this breakdown band becomes a bit more popular. And then the, the Ken Collier band with Donegan in it, the original first Ken Collier band, do a radio session for the BBC. And they do some of these breakdown songs. And the producer says, well, what what is this? This isn't a Ken Collier jazz band. What am I going to put on the form? This isn't this isn't trad jazz, is it? What is this? And Bill Collier says, "Oh, uh, this is the this is the Ken Collier skiffle band." 
Now, skiffle as a word. <laughs> skiffle is a word that was utilised by African-Americans in Chicago in the 1920s for what you and I might refer to as a rent party. They had a number of different names for it. One of them was a, was a skiffle, where they would brew some hooch, someone would come and play barrel house piano, and everyone would come along and, 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 and pay a little bit of money, and they'd raise some money to pay the rent. And in um, 1948, a guy named Dan Burley, who was uh, a kind of African-American journalist stroke Renaissance man on the jazz scene, he uh, was com uh, wanted to get together with some of his mates and make a record playing that old barrel house boogie-woogie that he used to play at rent parties in the 1920s in Chicago. So he got together with um, Brownie McGee and Sticks McGee and um, they made this Barrel House instrumental piano record, which was credited to Dan Burley and his Skiffle Boys. Now, really, in, in, that, in, in the way that Burley used the word, he would really use, we would, we would say in England, a knees up band. A knees up is a word, name for a, a sort of a party, you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a slang word for a party. So in in America, in Chicago, a skiffle is a thing. It's an event. It's not a, a, a genre. But when Bill Collier uses it in London in, in 1954, he changes the meaning of it from being an event into a style of music. Now, he definitely knew Dan Burley and his skiffle boys. He definitely knew what that, what that was. He worked in a record store, and, and barrel house piano was quite popular in Britain in the in the forties, early fifties. But he had a he had a real problem. He and his brother were kind of they were the kingpins of this sort of trad jazz scene, and Ken's credibility going to New Orleans was, you know, impeccable. But had he said to that BBC producer that Ken Collier band were playing the blues, I mean, they would have laughed him out of town. He would have lost his credibility because. At that point, blues could only be played by old black guys from America. White guys can't play the blues. So it's something else. It wasn't country. It wasn't, he couldn't say gospel. He had to use a word that both was in one sense meaningless, but also for anyone who knew, came from the tradition. So he chose this word. He could have chose a lot of it. He could have chose spasm. Spasm bands, very similar sort of thing. You know, he could have chose jug band. He could have chose a number of phrases out there. But he chose skiffle. And I think it's it's also good because it's kind of onomatopoeic of the scratchy constant strumming that jung 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 of skiffle, you know, it's it's pretty relentless. And he chose he chose that word. Skiffle in America and skiffle in the UK are two different things. They're not the same thing. Although the skifflers always said that their music originated in Chicago rent parties. They always said that. It says it on the back of almost all the skiffle records. They explain that. It's actually their way of plugging themselves into the tradition. The word originates in rent parties in Chicago in the 1920s, but skiffle music as played in, in Britain in the 1950s is a wholly indigenous form of music. It's never anything like it in America. And if you were a teenager in, in 1956, 1957, and you saw a sign that said skiffle club, you would think that if you went to that club, you would hear music played on guitars. Now, that could be any sort of music. It could be folk music, could be blues, could be calypso, could be cowboy songs, could be anything 
played on guitar. Although there is a style of skiffle, which is, you know, uh, there's a famous song written called Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O, which is kind of the, the, the key song from it. And it is like five guitar players, a washtub bass, and someone scraping on a, on a, uh, a washboard. But really, skiffle is a, was a catch-all word at the time for any, any music played on, on guitar. Well, what is happening is a confluence of, of events in the middle 50s that, that set the, the tone for, for Skiffle. The first thing that happens is in 1959, the BBC's monopoly on broadcasting is broken by commercial television stations in the UK. And because they don't have the budget to make productions in the way that the BBC do, which is funded by public subscription, and that the, the commercial stations have got to go for ratings, so they import a lot of TV programmes, like I Love Lucy. It's one of the most popular programmes on the independent channels and and a lot of westerns they bring in a lot of westerns uh gunsmoke and uh hop along cassidy for the kids david crockett all these kind of programs and and almost all of them uh, have singing cowboys in them cowboys and, and guitars were pretty synonymous back then you know gene autry was probably the key com uh, exponent of that so as a result of that singing cowboys start appearing in the charts slim whitman has a hit with, I know he was never really a cowboy, but he's kind of, he looked like a cowboy, if you know what I mean, if you were in Britain in the 50s. He had a huge, I think he was at number one for 12 weeks with Rosemary in 1955. And this was a real breakthrough. Nobody had really done this before. The charts had really been full of crooners and sort of girl singers who sang with swing bands, you know, big bands. And in the context of that, Rock Island Line is, is released in late 1955, but there's a few other, we have to sort of come back again a little bit, because what also happens in, in, in 1955 is uh, Blackboard Jungle comes out in the UK, and it begins with Bill Haley playing Rock Around the Clock. And not only is this something that people haven't heard before, because they're in a cinema, I mean, nobody in Britain has a stereo comparable to a cinema stereo, so hearing it for the first time, in a cinema, that loud, that big. People dance in the aisles. It's just, people just go just to hear the song, which isn't played on BBC. BBC won't play it, because it's, it's you know, trash music. The only way they can hear it is from Luxembourg, or those places that can pick up AFN, which is, isn't all everywhere in the UK. And also, at the, t at the time, chart, the, ch the music industry single sales are based on dance crazes. 1955 was all Mambo records. And late 1955, Rock Around the Clock, it looks like the next dance craze is going to be rock, whatever that is. And there was actually a dance called The Rock, where you rocked from one side to the other, which you sometimes <laughs> see in old newsreels. It's not like driving at all. So someone at, at, um, at Decca decides, oh, yeah, we've got this record, Rock Around the Clock, uh, uh, Rock Island Line. Maybe we should put that out. Because Rock Island Line's already been recorded in 1954 in the context of a, a jazz record. Basically, what happens with the, with the Ken Collier band is Ken Collier falls out with the band big time over what kind of jazz is trad jazz. It's a very, very hard thing to discern after all this time, but there's there's a difference between trad jazz and Dixieland jazz. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I'm I'm told it is there. I have faith in, in people who love music's yep. ability to split hairs. Yeah, yep. and particularly <laughs> jazzers, let me just say. No one does it like jazzers. So basically what happens is that... Um, Ken Collier falls out with the band because they they, they want to play other things like foxtrots and uh, you know music for people that 
outside of London who don't just want to hear New Orleans jazz, when they go to a dance, they expect to hear a few other different dances, you know. Collier is totally against this. So he tries to fire the band instead the band fire him. And so you end up with two bands, a Chris Barber jazz band, which includes Lonnie Donegan on banjo, and a Ken Collier jazz band, which includes Alexis Corner on guitar in his breakdown band. So they both go into the studio for Decker to make rival records. Ken Collier makes, in, in, in 1954, in July 1954, Ken Collier makes his, his, his record, uh, which I think is called Back to the Delta, and um, Chris Barber's record is called uh, New Orleans Joys. And what, what Barber wants to do is record some new material, new you know, breakthrough trad jazz songs, but they just don't have enough material. And they've only got a day to do it, and the session looks like it's going to collapse, and they haven't got enough tracks for the record. So the producer, it's like tearing his hair out. Lonnie Donegan says, well, why don't we do a few of these old skiffle songs? And the producer, I don't care if you just, you know, tap it out on your teeth. I just need the tracks. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I've spent 30 pounds on this session. <laughs> so he told me this. I spent 30 pounds on this session. I, you know, if we go back to Decca, they're going to be outraged if I haven't got a record. <laughs> so, so they have a chat and they decide to do uh, Rock Iron Line and John Henry. After band go home in disgust. So Chris Barber plays the bass. They ring up a friend of theirs, Beryl Bryden. She comes down and plays washboard. And they record a couple of skiffle tracks, which are credited to the Lonnie Donegan Skiffle Group on the record when it finally comes out. And it's uh, acoustic guitar, stand-up bass, and washboard. No drums. And this is uh, 13th of July, 1954. Two years later, this record will come out and change the face of British rock. A week before it's recorded, Rock Island Line recorded in, in London, a week before in Memphis, Tennessee, Elvis Presley, stand-up bass, two guitars, no drums, records That's All Right Mama at Sun Studios in Memphis. Almost simultaneous, almost simultaneous. The two most revolutionary singles of that era are, are recorded with a similar... Uh, idea, you know, a, a recording session that's not working. That's how Elvis ends up goofing around with That's All Right Mama. You know, Sam Phillips sticks his head out to the studio and says, what are you doing? And I say, we don't know. He says, well, roll it back and find somewhere to start and do it again, you know. And they're just goofing around. It's not what they expected. It's so, so similar, the genesis of, of Rock Iron Line and, and, and That's All Right Mama. And um, in some ways, Rockabilly is perhaps the closest of uh, American music to Skiffle. It has quite a few similarities, you know, souped-up blues songs, no drums initially. If you think of the great rockabilly bands like the, the, the Rock and Roll Trio, you know, Johnny, Johnny Bennett Trio, no drums, Paul Burleson, two guitars. You know, the only thing that's different, obviously, is electric guitars here and Johnny Bennett and Elvis Presley a bit more handsome than Ronnie Young. <laughs> So the album comes out, the, the, the New Orleans Joys album comes out in, in sort of six months later. Gets some nice reviews and sells quite a lot of copies. And, and Chris Barber goes, but Rock Online is just another track on this record. It's not a big deal. It's only after these guitar playing roustabout roust guys start appearing in the charts and the word rock comes into uh, music industry parlance that someone at Decca thinks about putting Rock Online out. You know, Because what, what basically what's happened is all these all the British crooners are wearing, you know, dinner jackets, and no one's, you know, no one's 
they've got no one trained to play an acoustic guitar and look like a roustabout. And then they've got Ken Collier, who's, who's been a merchant seaman, and Lonnie Donegan, who's been in the army. And some of the decker thinks, oh, these guys are kind of like those guys. Maybe we should put this out, see what happens. So they put it out and, and Rock Iron Line goes, goes into the charts. And now Rock Iron Line, if you ever listen to Donegan's Rock Iron Line, it's a very strange single. Because the first minute, 20 seconds, is the, the monologue about the story about the depot agent and the train driver and the livestock. So it's a long monologue. And then when it starts going, it starts going slowly and gets faster and faster and faster. And in Donegan's version, he actually becomes out of control. He, the tempo just, you know, he never gets a set tempo and holds it. He gets faster and faster and faster. And they're whooping and hollering. No record had ever been made like it. In many ways, it's, it's like anarchy in the UK. It's like totally gone. It's totally gone. And so there was something about that record that really engaged teenage boys. And the thing that was most special about it was Lonnie Donegan was born in Scotland and lived in East London, grew up in East London. And Rock Island Line and the success of Rock Island Line with that Lonnie Donegan imparted to British youth perhaps the two most revolutionary ideas that they ever received. One, you don't have to be a musician to play music. Two, you don't have to be an American to sing American songs. You know, Van Morrison was 12 years old when he heard Rock Island Line. He already knew Lead Belly's version because his father was a collector of blues songs who had a, a, a shop in, there was a shop in Belfast, a guy uh, named Sully Lipschitz, whose sister sent him blues records. It was called Atlantic Records. And it was all American records. So he knew Lead Belly's uh, Rock Iron Line. But he told me, in, while I, was, I interviewed him for the book, he said, when I heard Donegan, it suddenly made Lead Belly viable for me. He kind of opened the door for me to Lead Belly, which never was accessible to me until I heard Donegan. And I think you have to think of the context of that time. You know, it doesn't sound like that now, obviously, but you've got to go back and listen to the, the blandness of the charts at the time. And also I spoke to Joe Boyd, um, because Rock Online got to number eight in the Billboard charts as well, which you think about how weird that was. A, a British guy putting a Lead Belly song in the top ten in America. And, and also uh, generating like uh, a dozen uh, copycat versions, including Johnny Cash did a copycat version. Bobby Darren's first single was a copycat version of Donegan's Rock Online. And you know it's Donegan's because Don Donegan says specifically that the, the train driver is trying to get through a toll gate on the railroad. Now, there never was a toll gate anywhere on a railroad in the US. And Lead Belly certainly doesn't mention one. So anyone who sings the toll gate version, he stole it off Lonnie Donegan. Despite Johnny Cash trying to say that he recorded it before Donegan, that's, that's not borne out by the, by the facts. Obviously, the, you know, Skiffle led to all these kids forming these bands and in July 1957. John Lennon's Skiffle band, the Quarrymen, is playing. Um, Lonnie Donegan's number one at the time. He's number one with a song called Putting On The Style. And the only tape from that day that was taped of the Quarrymen is Lennon singing Putting On The Style, a la Lonnie Donegan. And that's when he meets, that's the day he meets McCartney. McCartney comes along with a friend and they, they meet one another. George Harrison was once asked if, you know, Lead Belly had been an influence on the Beatles. He said, oh, yeah, huge influence, huge influence. And they, they said, how so? He said, well, no Lead Belly, no Lonnie Donegan. No Lonnie Donegan, no Beatles. And it's, 
everyone knows the the skiffle aspect of the Beatles, but what what happens as a result of the, of that is there's a period after the Beatles have their first number one in America in early 1964. There's a period of two years, 64, 65, where there's a British artist at number one, 52 weeks out of 104, and every single one of those British artists was originally in a skiffle band, apart from Petula Clark. Petula Clark didn't need Lonnie Donegan because by the time Rock Island Line came out, she'd been singing since she was 12. She'd already had 30 singles out. So she's the exception that proves the rule. But all of those bands, you know, The Stones, uh, Manfred Mann, um, The Animals, Billy J. Kramer, The Dakotas, even Peter and Gordon, you know, all of them started playing guitar from listening to Lonnie Donegan. And, it's, and, it, and it carries on. I mean, you know, sort of David Bowie's first gig was doing a skiffle gig. Uh, Rod Stewart was originally in a skiffle band. Jimmy Page is on YouTube, age 14, playing Mama Don't Allow No Skiffle Playing Around Here of a British TV programme. It, it's kind of like it's boot camp for the British invasion, skiffle. And over the years, it, it's kind of been marginalised because it, it comes from a period in our history where I think a lot of people were ashamed by the poverty, cultural as well as uh, material poverty. Looking back at it, it is so like punk rock. You know, the, the the experience I had as a 19-year-old can be summed up in in the phrase from uh, Sideburns fanzine, here's three chords, now form a band. And that's exactly what Skiffle was about. You only had to learn three chords. All the songs were just three chords, you know. It was a, a music that didn't rely on incredible playing. It, ally, it relied on enthusiasm, you know. And everybody could be by it. It broke down the barrier between the audience and the, and the performers. There were... An estimated uh, guitar sales went from 1950, uh, 5,000 guitars a year to 250,000 guitars a year in, in 1956, which is more guitars per head in the UK being sold in equivalent in the United States of America in the same period. There were an estimated 30,000 to 50,000 skiffle bands in the UK. It peaked skiffle in 1957, but most of them were school kids playing in church halls and youth clubs. There wasn't a because there's nowhere for them to play. There was no scene. You know, there was no club scene. There was the, the Soho jazz clubs or the variety circuit or the vaudeville circuit. There was nothing in between. The skifflers that were successful had to go out with jugglers and strippers and, you know, comedians. There was nowhere for them to play in, in, because we're talking, you know, pre-Beatles, pre, uh, pre-1960s. The scene was, was really driven by 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kids. But when they were 25, you know, they went to Hamburg. When your white teenagers in America here were still listening to music, our teenagers have already been playing for five years. And it's that edge that allows the British invasion to happen. It's that Skiffle gives us 18 months, two years ahead of the majority of uh, American kids who pick up guitars in the wake of the Beatles when they see the Beatles. And Skiffle also gives, allows you to self-create your band. And the thing that's significant about the Beatles is that they were self-created. Up until then, British pop music had been relied on impresarios like Larry Parnes to create Tommy Steele and Billy Fury and Marty Wilde, all these stupid named artists, you know. The Beatles were self-created, and that's what Skiffle was all about, self-creation. It's DIY. And if you think punk was DIY, Skiffle has built their own instruments. You can't get more <laughs> DIY than that, okay? So so what I hope with this book is that I can get, you know, one of the, when I said to the, to the my publishers, don't care if, if you pay me less money, this book has got to come out in America. In the folk boom in, 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 in the US, P. 
people like the new Lost City Ramblers were using folk music to build a bridge to the past, to reconnect. The Skifflers were desperate to build a bridge to the future. They were building, getting out of post-war uh, rationing. I mean, you know, sweets were rationed until a month before Lonnie Donegan recorded Rock Iron Line. That's when rationing ended. So someone like John Lennon was born in 1940 has always known sweets on ration. No, no frilly cakes, nothing. You know, never mind all the other stuff that they went through. They went through real privation and skiffle was the way they pulled themselves into the modern world, into the 1960s. So it, it really is a, a, an absolute crucial period. But because, because to many of them it was a sort of like a, a childhood thing, when they sat down to talk about their influences in the 1970s, you could choose between saying Lonnie Donegan inspired me or Elvis Presley inspired me or Eddie Cochran or, you know, Lonnie Donegan ended up recording a song called My Old Man's a Dustman and Does Your Chewing Gum Lose, it, lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight. It became a sort of figure of fun. But that in, in the early years, he, he was putting Woody Guthrie in the charts, you know, Dead or Alive. He had a, he had a top ten hit with Dead or Alive. Nobody else was doing that. He's putting Lead Belly into the charts. So what's the name of the book and when can we expect it to be out? Well, I've just delivered the manuscript uh, and we're aiming to get it out for the summer of 2017, so next year. And it's called Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. And in some ways, it's the genesis of this train song project because it was looking at all this Lead Belly stuff that made me realise there were all these amazing train songs maybe get onto this railroad project. So the two, the two things come from the same place. Everything goes back to Lonnie Donegan. It's beautiful to see you, man. It's, you know, it's always great. I appreciate it. And you too, that. buddy. And I, and I love that you're still rocking with this and this uh, sort of like historical stuff that you're doing. It's really powerful stuff. You're a great storyteller, buddy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Billy for meeting up with me in that hotel room in downtown Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Billy at billybragg.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.